It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, hey, hey. Greetings. Welcome back to the Ambiguously Blind Studio. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. Another great way that you can help support the podcast experience is by rating and writing a review on whatever platform you find us on. So the most prominent one would be Apple Podcasts, but there are quite literally dozens of others. So if you wouldn't mind taking a few minutes out of your busy day, we really appreciate writing a review or leaving a rating. It helps provide some feedback about our presentation and what we're doing and also helps us appear more prominently so uh, new ears can hear what we have to say here. And speaking of feedback, if you wanted to contact me, the best way to do that would be to go to ambiguouslyblind.com or you can send me an email. It's john at amblind.com. That's J-O-H-N at A-M-B-L-I-N-D.com. We are going to hear from Maxwell Ivy, internationally known as the blind blogger. Max has a remarkable story that spans from being a carnival operator and blogging that turned into writing some books that has now turned into podcasting and his own podcast network. So Max, thanks a bunch for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Well, thanks for having me, John. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on your show. Yeah, it was kind of weird how we connected with each other. I got an email from somebody that said that they knew you and that they should, I should talk to you. And then I got another email a few days later from you saying, Hey, maybe we should talk. And kind of weird how that worked out but here we are yeah well that is kind of the way it works out i i've spent a, a, a long time introducing people making connections usually introducing people that are friends or clients to podcast hosts and as a result sometimes those people pass the word along either about me or somebody i introduced them to it's uh it's really a lot like uh, a lot like farming, like planting seeds. You don't always know what's going to happen when you send out those emails and say, hey, you should have John on your show. Uh, sometimes they have it. Sometimes it happens a year later or two years later. Or sometimes by them meeting you, you introduce them to somebody that, you know, is somebody they wouldn't have met otherwise. Uh, I, I firmly believe that podcasting, especially being interviewed as the host or the guest, is one of those things that just continues to to pay us back as long as we show up and have the right attitude about, you know, having a conversation and trying to help the other person and their listeners. You had a way of introducing yourself in an email to me that I just, I won't be able to repeat. I'll just butcher it. So introduce yourself as you did to me. Who is Maxwell Ivy? I am Maxwell Ivy, known around the world as the blind blogger. I'm a totally blind man from Houston, Texas who has transformed himself from a morbidly obese failed carnival owner to respected amusement equipment broker to self-help author, motivational speaker, online media publicist, host of What's Your Excuse, and founder of the What's Your Excuse podcast network. That is a lot of stuff there. Yeah, but it's much shorter than it used to be. (laughs) And I kind of want to unpack some of those things. So let's start with the totally blind man part. What is your visual acuity, Max? I have light perception, which is very difficult because people have what they believe or understandings of what that means, and it's difficult sometimes to explain it. So quite often I say totally blind because it makes it easier. But in general, 
I can only see light if it is very bright and if I'm looking directly at where the light should be. So when I go into my room to record a video, the last thing I do before I sit down is look at the ceiling fan or at my lamp and then hit the light switch so I can be sure that I'm not recording in the dark again. Yeah, that wouldn't be good. No, it's never good when they see people sitting in the dark because sighted people get upset when they they can't see things. Uh, However, my very first video that I recorded as the blind blogger that happened, and half the people that watched the video said, Max, you're sitting, it looks like you're sitting in a cave. You really should take that video down and re-record it. And the other half of the people were like, you know, Max, your first book is titled Leading You Out of the Darkness. Uh, here you are sitting in this dark room. So so what? You're going to lead us out of the darkness? What a great metaphor. We can't believe you actually thought of something like that. Yeah, and genius. Yeah, you are yes, genius. Yes, genius. Genius. So I had, to, I had to fess up and go, no, it was an accident. But quite often our accidents can be better than our intentions. And in that case, it gave me a video that, that I wouldn't say went viral, but it has had more than its share of of comments and views because it just wasn't quite right. And how long has your vision been that way? Has it been that way since the beginning? Right. I had perfect vision when I was born. I started losing it gradually. About the time I was five or six, the family noticed that I was running into things and falling down more than the rest of the kids. So they had me check. We found out that I had retinitis, pigmentosa, or RP, and it Continued to decrease gradually until I entered junior high school. I had a big drop off of vision then, which is fairly common for men with RP, that we have uh, big decreases in vision when we go through puberty. And it stayed constant pretty much until I graduated from college. But by the time I graduated, it was down to pretty close to what it is now, which is uh, light perception with maybe 10 or 15% of peripheral vision. So even if my vision was working, you know, I just have no, I'd have to turn my head from side to side to see anything. So that's my, my vision, my vision loss. What's the most common misconception you get when you tell somebody that you're blind? Uh, the most common misconception is that they think that all blind people are the same. And so they may try to apply what they know from the one or two people they've known in their past of their lives that was blind. Um, It's kind of not for me, but kind of in a reverse. I have friends who have more vision than I do who tell me that quite often people assume that white cane means that they're totally blind. And so sometimes they end up in uh, difficult situations or people looking at them funny because, you know, they're using what vision they have. But I think the main thing is they assume that that blind people have a type that we are a group. And as I'm sure you know, we're individuals, even a blind, two blind people with the same disease and the same vision acuities with the same education and training and equipment, they'll find different answers to the same question. So when people meet me, they generally, if they knew better, they would wonder why Max doesn't use his cane more, why he's very satisfied to go side to guide. And, you know, if they, knew me after they met other people, they would be, and he, <laughs> he really doesn't take advantage of his skills. But, you know, if they meet me first, they'll think, well, you know, he's a very sociable person. He enjoys talking to people and getting to know, know people. And he's, 
He's using the sighted guide as an excuse to have conversations and get to his destination at the same time. So it really does. I think the biggest thing is people try to assume that we're a group that, you know, one size fits all is the bar of the expression. And you mentioned sighted guide. So that would be a person. Is that normally what you do? Do you use a cane? Have you, have you ever used a service animal or anything along those lines? Right. So I use the white cane. I have never used a service animal. A year and a half ago, while traveling in New Jersey, I fell in a strange house. So since then, I've been considering uh, getting a guide dog. I had even pretty much decided to do it before COVID came along and pretty much put an end to any new training at any of the schools and basically made the waiting list that most of them have even longer because, you know, they weren't training any new people, just trying to retrain the dogs so that the dogs understood how to deal with COVID. So I haven't. Had a service animal, but I'm probably going to. I've been trained in how to use my white cane. I'm fixing to take refresher classes in orientation and mobility uh, because I know that I need to be better when I travel independently. But, you know, to me, I feel like why not take advantage of the person who lives there? Or who can, who can, you know, has 20-20 vision and can see it before before either one of us get to it. You know, so that's... That's always been my approach. I'm, I recently had an, an orientation and mobility instructor, which we refer to as O&M, tell me that uh, she wasn't so disappointed with my lack of use of my skills. She chose to see, see me as a problem solver, and I thought that was a very positive expression. But, you know, when I travel, especially like uh, planes, I'm perfectly willing to take a wheelchair because the places are huge. And I don't run well, so mm-hmm. yeah. And that's 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 the way I approach it. And I and you know, in 2016, I went to New York City for a couple of weeks as one of the Amtrak riders in residence. And I like to to joke to people that I traveled all over New York New York City, going from one shoulder to another. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Do you wear glasses for either sun protection or just protection in general? I, I'm not consistent, but I do wear them for sun protection. I have a friend who keeps telling me I need to wear them more often just because when people see, if if people saw me in those glasses, they would be less likely to think I can see. I don't, I don't know about you, but I quite often get reactions out of people as if they either aren't sure or they don't think that I'm visually impaired. Oh, yeah. Well, Max, this is the Ambiguously Blind podcast we're on here, so... Um, I, I consider myself to be ambiguously blind. I ride a, a bicycle by myself. So yeah, you were telling me about that the other night. Yeah. I'm very impressed. Yeah. So there are things that I do and, and I've talked with other people, uh, notably a couple episodes ago, I spoke with a professor in an op, op in a, at the university of Montreal and he was working with people that, um, there was a guy he was working with that would drive a vehicle but used a white cane also like he could see well enough to drive, but not well enough to get around, which is baffling to me. And he said, this guy drove somewhere, parked his car, got out with a white cane and people called the police because <laughs> they were, what's going on here. So yeah, the, you, you've also mentioned it too about the range of, of blindness or the, the visual spectrum. It's uh, it's, it's wide and deep and uh really there's not too many two people that see the same even though they may have the same 
technically the same acuity. So right, and I think I have a I think I have a guess about your uh, the, the this fellow that the professor told you about. It could be that because he's driven all his life, his brain is used to driving, but his brain is not used to navigating with a white cane. And as you get older, the brain it still has the ability to adjust. It still has elasticity as the new term neural neuroelasticity or neuroplasticity applies. But as we get older, the brain doesn't adjust as quickly as it used to. It doesn't rewrite those pathways as quickly. I know we got to try to figure out something on that. Just, I mean, getting older uh, has, a, has lots of, lots of awesome things that, that occur. And, and speaking <laughs> of getting older, uh, do you have advice that you would give yourself as a younger man uh, when you were going through your vision loss? Are there things that, that you know now that you wish you knew then? Well, not specifically related to my vision loss, but I would say that if I knew now what I knew, what I, if I could apply now what I know now, then I would say to not be so uh, focused, not to fall into the tunnel vision of thinking that there was only one or two paths that I could have gone down, and to have explored some of those other opportunities sooner in my life. Uh, I also feel like at this point, I would be farther along as a author, a blogger, and a podcaster if I had accepted that our carnival was going out of business sooner, you know, three or four years sooner. Who knows where I might be now? So those are some of the things that, that occur to me now. Of course, you know, there's a lot of difference between 1980 and 2020 as far as the available options and the technology to make those options really possible for blind people, you know, today versus then. But still, I think I was really sold that uh, being in the carnival business was the only thing I was ever going to do. And it took a long time to accept that that wasn't going to be the case anymore. And then to transition from that into something a little different and then eventually into something totally different. Let's talk about the carnival business a little bit. Tell me about that. What did what did you do the with the carnival in the carnival business? And what is the carnival business? Right. Well, it's it was much different then than it is now. Now it's pretty much a corporate industry where you have huge mega carnivals with millions of dollars of equipment. When my family was well, I I, st- I have a cousin and his family who are still operating a carnival. Of course, the one they have now is probably thirty five or forty rides. So. It's not small by any means. And, you know, but back then, my family had seven rides. The biggest show that any of us knew the owner personally would have been 15 rides. And, you know, I helped set up and take down equipment. Uh, I sold tickets, uh, helped in the cotton candy, candy apple stand. I did the bookings. I was with them going up and down the road. And I was... You know, basically there to do heavy lifting when needed. So, I, you know, I pretty much did everything that you can do in our industry except drive. I've never done that. And the one time that I did almost do that, I almost put a, a panel van into the side of a $100,000 sizzler ride. So that was not something we did <laughs> yeah, twice. Not a good idea. No. So did it did it take you pretty far? I mean, how far did you guys travel with that? Well, with our show, we traveled. Uh, we we didn't stay in the same route more than three to five years at a stretch. But we traveled from Texas to Kansas. We traveled from Texas to Tennessee and Kentucky. 
and then also out to Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia. So uh, pretty much the southeast and some of the Midwest, and probably never farther west than San Antonio or the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And at some point you decided that this was uh, not going to be the road for you going forward, and you got into, um, is that, when did the blind blogger come along? Well, um, first I realized that I was not going to be able to be a carnival owner anymore. So I thought, well, what else do you know how to do? And I felt like I knew how to help other people sell their used rides because I had just had to do it for my family. So I started the Midway Marketplace to do that. And then as a result of building that website and overcoming all the difficulties of being online for the first time in my life in 2007, which was before WordPress, Wi-Fi, and Facebook. So doing all of that was what brought me to the attention of people when people started saying that my story was inspiring. And that's when I went from being the Mr. Midway or Midway Marketplace to the blind blogger. Well, and let's back up just a minute on the Midway Marketplace. Like, uh, what does a, what's a ride sell for or who makes them and how do you move them from? You know, it depends. If we're talking about older children's rides, mostly mechanical, they can be a few thousand dollars. If we're talking about brand new state fair quality thrill rides, they can be anywhere from a million dollars on up for portable versions, several million dollars for semi-portable or or park quality attractions. And then if you know if you're talking about amusement parks, I don't have a company that I work with on new equipment that deals directly strictly with amusement parks, but the one coaster that this one company in Italy has that would apply starts at $4 million. So, you know, it really depends are you talking, you know, new, used, portable, semi-portable, park model. And also it depends on what part of the world it operates in because here in the U.S. and Canada, it's all about portability. We do not carry extra extra trucks and trailers for lights and scenery, but in a lot of the rest of the world, they will move extra trucks and trailers and have extra staff to make things look flashier. So really, that, that also plays into it. So the first ride I ever sold was a $3,000 kitty train that looked like... Uh, looked like the three little pigs going down the track that the kids would ride in. The most expensive piece of equipment that I've sold was a quarter of a million dollar carousel, which I actually didn't get paid my commission for. Oh, man. What happened? Yeah. Well, it turned out that, uh, you know, the old expression that contracts are only meant for people or only apply to people who want to who want to abide by them. Yes. Well, that's what happened. The other fellow did not want to abide by the contract and did everything short of suing him, which would have been expensive because he lives in Vermont and I live in Texas. So, but eventually had to accept that he wasn't going to pay me and move on from that. The most expensive ride I ever sold where I got paid was a $150,000 mall carousel that was operating in Georgia. And the really cool thing about that was I sold that ride after it had been listed with a bigger outfit for over a year. And they actually got mad at me when I sold it, and they refused to provide the buyer with the documentation, the operator's manuals and the, the schematics and that sort of stuff. We eventually had to, had to buy them from a third party so that he could install the carousel. But they were like, man, we've been trying to sell that thing for a year. That's our listing. We should get paid, you know, so that 
that's the most expensive thing I ever sold where I got paid. Uh, and my my favorite sale ever, I sold a simulator called an Astroliner that went from Lawrence, Kansas to Melbourne, Australia. That was really cool because that was my first international sale. And it was one of those cases where the guy, he got a hold of me through my brother and said, hey, this is what I want to find. Can you find it? And I found it. And that's those are the kind of things that make you feel like, yeah, I can do this and people can pay me to do it. And so those experiences uh, brought you to the uh, to the blind blogger. Yeah, well, you know, because it took so, you know, as you know, with a with a podcast, there's just so much stuff you have to do in order to run an online operation, whether it's a blog, a podcast or in my case, an equipment selling site. And so, you know, I had to learn how to code HTML. You know, you have to re- recruit clients and figure out what to charge them. And there's just so many things you have to learn. And as social media came along, people were seeing me actually work through these challenges. And, you know, they they got to where they wanted to hear more about what I was doing and how I was able to do it. And they said, we want to hear more about being an entrepreneur who happens to be blind. And so I finally decided I was going to start a second website. And when I decided to do that, I put it out on LinkedIn and Facebook. Okay, I'm going to do this. What I want to call it. And my online friends said, you know, Max, we've been calling you the blind blogger for two years now. If you're going to start a website, that's who you ought to be. So the .com was taken, but the .net was available. And, you know, six plus years later, it's become a brand name. And while People may find other people if they just search for blind blogger. If you search for the blind blogger in pretty much any platform that's going, they're going to find me. Okay. And what is it you do over at the blindblogger.net? Well, it's the home for whatever I happen to be up to. So it's my blog site where I write about uh, episodes of my podcast, interviews I've done, and experiences I've had along with the lessons people can take from them. Quite often, my blog posts start out with me attempting to do something, uh, having it not go exactly the way I wanted it to, and then working through the process of getting out of the mess and telling the story about it. And those, you know, basically by implication, I'm sharing this message that, you know, if I can overcome these things, then y'all probably can too. Or as many of my friends and followers have written on the website, if Max can do it, then what's my excuse? The website is also, you know, where people can find my books, the What's Your Excuse merchandise, basically anything that's going on in my life that I think people can take some sort of a lesson from, it's going to show up on the website. And as my my friend Cassie from church recently told a new acquaintance of mine, she told her, be careful what you say around Max, because if you say something he likes, you're liable to end up on his blog or in a future book. Well, okay, duly noted. So it stands to reason that over the years you've had some pretty interesting conversations with people. Are there uh, what, are there any that are the best or the most interesting people you've talked to? You know, I think as a host, you always hope that that next interview is going to be the best or your favorite. I would say they there's there's I would say there's two groups. There's the group of people like Madeline Black who was, you know, gang raped as a teen, who complimented me on how I managed to to handle helping her tell her story in, in a way that was was uh, very respectful. And, you know, pe- stories like that, they're difficult for me to listen to. 
but I know that they have a benefit for my audience. And then uh, people who have some sort of a of a disability or suffer diversity who have a good story to tell. Like uh, I really enjoyed talking with Kalari Gertley, who is a former baseball World Series champion, mother of three. She's blind. Her husband's blind. They live in Chicago. They've raised three kids. They're continuing. I mean, it's just one of those interviews that was a great interview. But, I mean, how can you not love a story like that, that these, these, this, this uh, couple is, is raising kids not only with vision loss, but in one of the toughest cities in the country? Mm-hmm. I love a good story. And if the person is really good at telling their story, that's like the story squared. So if if I look back at my favorite episodes, those are going to be the ones that stick out. The people who were characters who were willing to laugh at themselves and didn't take themselves too seriously during the interview. And is the podcast called What's Your Excuse? Is that what the podcast is? Yeah, that's what it's called. And again, I didn't choose the name. I did my very best to avoid using no excuses or what's your excuse. But uh, my my following, my community wouldn't just just wouldn't let it go. And sometimes the smart thing to do is just to say thank you and go on with it. And that's what I've done. And the, what's your excuse as a podcast? People call me the leader of the, what you know, of the no excuses movement, or they'll call me Mr. What's your excuse. And of course, that's what we're going to call the podcast network is what's your excuse network. And, uh, you know, it's the only doubt, the only thing I wish, wish that, I had accepted this idea a few years sooner because then I would have been able to claim the what's your excuse domain name instead of uh, currently I'm my podcast is my network. That is, is going to be under WY excuse.com kind of like eofire.com and some of the others that are, are doing that because quite frankly, I couldn't afford the $25,000. The owner of what's your excuse wants. (laughs) Yeah, that's tough. (laughs) Yeah, you know, again, sometimes the it's sometimes procrastination, stalling, you know, uh, fighting against something that you should have accepted ends up making things more difficult later. Yeah, sometimes probably more than more than it doesn't. More times than not, yeah. Was the you've mentioned a, a couple of books as well as an author? Uh, was that an easy transition to make from the blogging and the writing into into getting public published? Well, I have been self-published, and I've done that with the help of my editor, Lorraine Regulie, at uh, wordingwell.com. And I mention her, not because she pays me or asks me to, but because I feel gratitude towards her. But my first book, I actually started on a dare. A woman reached out to me to invite me to be part of a virtual summit. And she said anybody that wanted to be part of the summit had to have uh, something they could give away or that they would sell at a discount for people signing up their email list. That was the whole purpose of doing the summits, as it was explained to me. She said, well, why don't, why don't you write a book? She said, I think you could do that. And she said, I think you could do it in a couple of months. And I said, you're crazy. And this is coming from a guy who other people call me crazy all the time. So she should have realized that if I was calling her nuts, it meant something. <laughs> and uh, I said, I've never written a book before. I have no, I have no desire to write a book. I wouldn't know where to start. And she said, well, I'm going to help you out. She said, I'm going to send you a, a, uh, a book I wrote about writing a book for events like this. And she said, I'm going to share my favorite quote with 
from Richard Branson, which is promise to deliver and then figure out how. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to that. I told her, I said, you know, that sounds really good. I said, but if it if two months from now I still don't have a book, this is all going to be your fault. I'm going to make sure everybody knows this was you, not me. So I start writing the book, and I'm working on it for probably three or four weeks, and she gets back to me. She goes, Max, the other four people in the summit are all women, and they've decided it would be better for marketing purposes if it was all women. So you're out. And I said, well, you know, I'm a carny kid. I grew up in a family of people who know a little something about promoting things. So I understand what it is to want to put, you know, more feet on the ground or butts in the seats or faces behind the screens. I said, so this is fine, but I'm not going to stop writing the book. So I kept working on it. I started showing it to friends of mine who kept telling me how great it was. And I kept telling them, no, y'all are full of it. You don't know what you're talking about. And eventually a, a friend of mine and a coach for business people out in California read it and she said Max this is really good and if you don't publish it I'm going to send it off to your editor for you because I had written about how Lorraine had helped me with some problems on my website she said I know who I know who to send this to so if you don't do it I'm going to do it for you and that was what finally convinced me that it was good enough and it was published in January of 2014 it's uh it's the only only one of my books so far that's available in audio mainly because the people at RNIB and NLS still haven't figured out who the heck I am and they still haven't uh, agreed to record any of my books on audio for me. Mm. Okay. So, but, you know, I, I I understand that they have limited resources, so maybe I just ain't famous enough yet. We'll just have to keep working on it. I don't know. Maybe the appearance on this podcast will bump up your popularity. You know, you could be onto something. More importantly, this could be, you know, your podcast could be the kind of show that puts me in front of the right type of influencer. I mean, it's it's not like there are, you know, a a high percentage of visually impaired people listening to a lot of the podcasts I go on, but I would imagine that there are quite a few in this audience. So Yeah, you never you never know. I I was kidding a little bit there, but um <laughs> Well but you, you know, never you know. You never you know, know. You gotta be you gotta be careful what you say out loud sometimes. But yeah, you know, you know, you, your regular audience plus my story. This could be the place where, you know, I meet somebody who can, you know, make that introduction to that one right person that gets my books on NLS. Which, think about it, as an author, it's kind of backwards that an author would want to have their books available in NLS or, or excuse me, National Library Services for the Blind for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about or RNIB, Royal National Institute for the Blind, or uh, CNIB, which is Canada, when you don't get paid anything for those audiobooks, you know. But it's prestige. It's something I can cross off my bucket list. And every person who reads one of those books has the ability to tell their friends, hey, I just read this great book on BARD, which is the the, the digital app that uh, supply people use for the Libra Library of Congress books. Yeah, this just just listen to this great book on Bard. You need to go buy it, you know. But I mean, think about it. It is kind of backwards that authors would want to, and actually feel slighted if their books aren't available on a free platform so other blind people can read them. Now, what's the name of the book you were talking about? The one that you published in fourteen. Uh, it's called "Leading You Out of the Darkness into the Light: A Blind Man's Inspirational Guide to Success." It has eleven exercises along with. 
how I answered the questions and worked through the exercises in my own life, along with my email address so that people who get the book can uh, report their progress and complain about their frustrations and basically have somebody who they know will either understand them or at least try to understand them. And a lot of quote coaches told me that was a mistake when I decided to do it. But, you know, I really want people to make progress when they read my books or listen to my podcast. You know, I don't want them to just buy the book and put it on their bookshelf or read it and not use it. And I felt like the best way to encourage people was to let them know how much I really want to see them take action in their lives. And I felt like that was an easy way to to make the point. And so far, I've actually been a little bit disappointed by the number of emails I've gotten compared to the number of copies of books I've sold. Now, those books are available at the blindblogger.net. Are they available anywhere right. else? Right. They're available at um, Amazon, iBooks, any of the places you normally buy your books. And since my latest two books have the Blind Blogger in their titles, if you go on any of the, of the digital book platforms and put the Blind Blogger into the search engine, you will find Max Ivey and, and his books. Okay. What was what's the most uh, interesting or fun book that you've written? Oh, my favorite book. That's an easy question. It's uh, The Blind Bloggers, New York City Adventures, How You Can Make Your Dreams Come True. It details my trip to New York that I mentioned earlier, but how I competed for and won the trip in the first place, how I decided where I was going to go and when I was going to go and how long I was going to stay gone, and just many of the problems I had to address. And the my the thing that makes it my favorite book is I had a camera with me then that I don't have anymore. And so I was able to get a lot of great pictures taken by just random strangers as I've traveled across New York City. And so uh, I got home with over 200 photos. My editor, you know, thinned them out to the really good ones. And so we've got 62 really great photos of the journey to go along with the storytelling. And, you know, the stories are funny. They're honest. I generally, you know, I don't I don't hold anything back. and. I'm willing to share when, you know, when things did bother me or scare me or didn't go right, but also, you know, how I managed to to overcome the difficulties or, you know, how uh, how like, you know, in the if I hadn't received additional funds while I was traveling, how I would have still enjoyed the trip, you know. So there there's lots of good lessons. Each chapter ends with key takeaways, and I'm told that there are some people who the first thing they did after they got into the book a little ways was just start skipping ahead to the key takeaways and, you know, copying them and putting, you know, putting them in a file so they could carry them around with them. So it's a, it's a really cool book. Uh, my favorite photo in the book is one taken of me by a secret service agent while another secret service agent is standing in front of me looking like he's about to take me into jail. <laughs> no, wait a minute. How, how did you get it with a secret service agent? I mean, what what was the circumstances there? All right. Well, um, I was I was going to visit uh, Trump Tower because in 2016 that had become one of the New York City landmarks, and so I'm there. And I asked the the security people if I could take if they could help me take some pictures outside, and they're like, "Man, it's too busy. There's too many people. There's no way you're going to get pictures outside." I said, "Okay, I understand." So I go inside, and because of the security issues, if you had a bag with you, you had to put it on the uh, 
what is it? The uh, oh, correct. The thing that moves stuff along. Uh, yeah, the conveyor. The, yeah, the conveyor scanned. belt. And yeah. the, they scan it. Okay, so I was standing there waiting on my messenger bag to go through the machine, and I'm talking to the Secret Service guy, and I'm telling him why I'm there. And I said, yeah, I was really hoping to get some pictures for the folks back home, but they told me I couldn't take any. And he says, what do you mean they said you couldn't take any? He said, we'll fix this. And so the next thing I know, I've got a Secret Service agent walking me around the lobby of Trump Tower and then taking me outside to help me get some pictures. And so there's some really good pictures in there of me at the Trump Tower with the Secret Service agent with a, uh, I guess he's like an ATF agent, and then with a uh, New York City firefighter. And I don't know any of the names of the people who are in the photos. Uh, I've reached out to the people at Secret Service several times to let them know that happened, but they've never responded back to me. So Yeah, they may disavow all knowledge of that because instead <laughs> of manning the, uh, protecting the president or, or whoever the candidate, they were taking pictures out, out in the front. So yeah, I, I can... they may, they may, <laughs> they may. But who knows if they just imagine what it could do if somebody from the Secret Service tried to confiscate all the available copies of my book. You know, I mean, yeah, that's like that's like that's like printing money there. I mean, yeah, well, you never know. I don't know. Again, maybe somebody will uh, maybe somebody will hear this. Yeah, yeah. But I I would love to find out who it was who took the pictures because he was a really nice guy. But like I say, it was just one of the things I said. So they told me they couldn't help me take no pictures. And he's like, what do you mean? We'll fix this. So one of my great members in New York City, which is, you know, I have lots of lots of things happen to me in New York that, you know, were really uh, I when I travel or when I do anything, I have a very positive mindset. I like to say you meet the people you expect to meet. And so I I have a I have a very positive attitude as far as the experiences that I'm going to have, the people I'm going to meet, the events that are going to occur. So. I think a lot of times stuff like that happens to me that wouldn't happen to other people. But even for me in New York, I mean, I had a cabbie try to give me his umbrella till I pointed out that a blind guy with a cane in one hand and an umbrella in the other hand was not a good combination. Yeah, you get in trouble with that. Poke somebody <laughs> else's eye out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so lots of good, you know, lots of stuff like that happen. I find very, I generally find, you know, helpful people along the way. So, and I know that, you know, yeah, I, I don't generally purposely go into places where I know that are dangerous. If I'm going to another city or even here in Houston, I pay attention to what places that, you know, you're absolutely supposed to avoid. But generally in my travels, I'm like, you know, the person sitting next to me could be my next best friend. I just won't know unless I say, hey, you know. Yeah. And that's just kind of the way life is. I mean, even visually impaired or not. That's just how networking works and how you get to know people and, and how the world works. Right. Do you find that um, being visually impaired uh, gives you more license to, to, to meet people and to have conversations that, that you wouldn't normally have than, say, uh, say, sighted people? Or do you think it's just a matter of we're less inhibited because of it? Well, it could be a combination of either of those things, I think. But it certainly is something that, I think generally people would be interested in knowing more about, but there's some stigma about maybe whether that person wants to talk about their disability or their visual impairment or something. And so I generally try to dispel those myths, at least for me, because it's not something I have a, an issue talking about so much so that I decided to start podcasting about it in case people didn't get the full <laughs> idea. But um, it, I, I, it's, a, it's certainly a talking point and something that, you know, if you, if you ask for help or you need assistance with something, 
it's a conversation that you likely wouldn't have otherwise. So it, it can lead you into those things pretty easily. Right, right. And and as we were talking before we started recording, you know, that one of the things I find really ironic is how my being willing to ask for help, uh, mainly because with my vision loss, I really don't have a choice a lot of the time, has become such a, a an important lesson that I'm teaching the sighted world to the point that it has become the number one thing that I'm asked to speak about or that I write about or that I'm asked about in podcast interviews. And really, it's just the different upbringings. You know, me having RP, knowing that eventually I was going to lose most, if not all, my vision. My family and teachers always encouraged me to ask for help, to never be afraid, to put my hand up and say I needed help and, you know, explain what the problem was and and try to get some help with the solution. But, you know, the majority of the world, especially the sighted, able world in the U.S. and Canada, they're raised to believe that if you ask for help, you're there's something wrong with you. You know, it's a sign of failure, yeah, weakness, weakness. Or something. yeah, yeah. And if you ask for opportunities, it's a sign of, you know, you you think too much of yourself. You know, if you, you know, for a lot of people, even very successful people, they have difficulty reaching out and asking to be featured in a magazine or to come on a podcast because. They feel like, you know, the other person will think they're bragging or, you know, it just isn't seemly to promote yourself. So whether you're asking for help or opportunities, it really does come back to how you're raised. And me, I have this advantage of, you know, first being raised because of my vision loss. And then, you know, I spent 15 years helping book a seven ride carnival in Texas. And you know this, and but most people out there won't know this. In Texas, if your neighbor's carnival is bigger than your carnival, you're a failure. So we had seven rides. Most of our competitors had 15 or 20 rides, and, and some shows had twice that many. So I spent a lot of time being told no and basically had to just get over the fact that, you know, to the point that no didn't bother me anymore. It was just another word. And uh, as my dad used to say when I get frustrated, he would go, look, just make the next call because if you don't ask, they can't say yes. So I have the upbringing because of my vision loss and then because of being a, a carnival promoter. And I've now applied that to my life as a online media publicist or digital media publicist. And because mainly, you know, a lot of people are still afraid to ask whether that's help or opportunities. And so I do the asking for them. Okay, Max, it's been real uh, interesting chatting with you. Hopefully we can chat again soon. And uh, I do want to learn a little bit about your uh, publishing prowess and things because I have a few ideas of my own in that regard. But for now, just uh, what's going on with you? What are you working on now? Okay, well, just one comment about your publishing desires is no matter how good you believe you are, always start by hiring a good editor. That's, that's what I would say to that because if you have a good editor, all you have to do is do the writing. You let them figure all that other stuff out. So... Uh, as far as what I'm up to, I'm really enjoying helping other people learn how to be great podcast guests, uh, coaching them, preparing them, and, and then introducing them to my friends and to hosts of shows I've been on in the past. It's very satisfying work because a lot of people have great stories to tell, but they still haven't gotten past the fear of, of telling them. And then also I have uh, launched this network called the what's your excuse network where my goal is to help other visually impaired people and others with disabilities 
to create and launch their own podcasts. I feel like them having a podcast is going to serve one of two purposes. They're either going to turn it into a business and they're going to make more money at it than I do, or it's going to give them self-esteem and life skills that they can apply in their daily life or that they can apply when seeking employment through traditional forms of, of, of work. So that's what I'm working on. People can find me at theblindblogger.net. Uh, they can find everything else, including the podcast, at theblindblogger.net. They can also find the podcast, though, by saying, by asking Alexa or Google or Siri to play, what's your excuse? The network itself, which I'm hoping that some of my friends who have shows already will be wanting to syndicate to once once I get it up and running, is at wyexcuse.com or wyexcuse.com. Those are the things that I'm up to. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you. I'm really hoping that uh, in the next year or two, I can uh, have further conversations with you and some of the other great people I've met during this last year, but do them in person. Yeah, that would be weird, wouldn't it? With uh, COVID, <laughs> we need to be in person, but sounds good, Max. Uh, thanks a bunch for joining. All right, thank you so much for having me. Without people like you, there really wouldn't be a what's your excuse, so thank you. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind Podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe. And for a complete transcript of this episode, connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.